Welcome to Sportsbeat KC, the Kansas City Star's daily sports podcast. It's Friday, February 19th, and I'm Blair Kirkhoff. College sports writer Jesse Newell is on today's show, and he's here to talk about a story he wrote earlier this week suggesting there's a better way to select the NCAA tournament field than with a selection committee. If you know Jesse and his love of analytics, you won't be surprised to learn this system involves numbers and percentages. Also, Jesse gives us his AP Top 25 voting rationale, which differs from many others who vote in the poll. His system takes into account factors that other voters don't use, and sometimes that creates a situation where a team or two in his Top 25 and the AP poll wildly disagree. This season, one of those teams has been Missouri. Jesse explains his system. After a break, we shift gears, and you'll hear a snippet from an interview that star columnist Vahe Gregorian conducted with Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. The museum received a collection of memorabilia recently from none other than the late actor and director Penny Marshall. Bob tells Vahe about her connection to the Negro Leagues. But first, here is Jesse Newell. Jesse Newell joins us. Jesse, of course, covers the Kansas Jayhawks. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. So Jesse covered the KU-Kansas State uh, clash in Manhattan on Wednesday night, a defensive struggle uh, with Kansas winning, what was it, 59-41. Tough game all around to watch, Jesse. The shooting was particularly abominable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, K-State brought in their walk-ons with a minute left and they immediately hit two threes and made me think that maybe the walk-ons seem to be playing for both teams because, yeah, it was ugly. And, uh, you know, it's it's sort of funny at this point because you can kind of predict Bill Self. He's, he's you know, you kind of know what he's going to say and he loves these wins. I mean, he, he just does. He loves defensive efforts. He loves Big Ten style. He loves winning when and winning comfortably when he doesn't feel like his team shot well or particularly played well on the offensive end. So he was pretty happy going out of Manhattan. But yeah, based off that first half effort for both teams where it was sloppy and there were some turnovers and there was just nobody making any shots. I think I tweeted at halftime that K was up nine uh, and probably deserved to be down five. And K-State was down nine and probably deserved to be down 25. <laughs> so there were no winners from that first half, whether it was fans of either team watching or media members or coaches or teams. Uh, nobody was a winner watching the first half of that game. We'll get into some KU and K-State talk next week. But the reason that uh, Jesse is here today is I wanted to talk with him about his – article that appeared in the print editions of the Kansas City Star, I think on Wednesday, but it was online a couple of days earlier, still online. And the idea of this story is there is a better way to select the NCAA tournament field than with a selection committee. So basically in one article, Jesse trashed the time-honored co- <laughs> tradition of the NCAA tournament selection committee that uh, works selflessly and tirelessly uh, to select the 68-team field. And, um, and so Jesse has found a better way or suggests a better way. I, I found it fascinating. I hadn't considered it. And it all, it all revolves around a statistic that I had not heard of until uh, I read the article, and that is wins above bubble. So that's the setup, Jesse. Take it from there, and and um, and then we'll we'll chat about it. Yeah, and and this isn't completely a criticism of the tournament committee because they're asked to do a very difficult job, and one that I think a lot of different people have a lot of different ideas about how it should be done. And 
in the end, you kind of end up with a process that you have a lot of questions about at the end. It's like, hey, how did you come about and get this team in there and not this team? And it seems like any committee you have is going to have different answers. They have different criteria. Depends on what side of the bed they woke up on. And uh, that seems like a, a process that probably could be done a lot easier and a lot more transparently if it was automated. And so, yeah, that's wins above bubble. I know um, some of these acronyms kind of get out of control a little bit, but uh, if people are familiar, it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, you hear wins above replacement in baseball. You know, it's just kind of a way to say, hey, here's a replacement player. Here's how much better they are. Wins above bubble is sort of like the college basketball version of a schedule-based thing. And it's a very good way uh, to have a resume type of measure for college basketball. So basically it, it looks at advanced stats and it says, Hey, what percentage chance would a bubble team have of winning a particular game based off of who the opponent is and whether it's uh, on the road or at home. So I think the example I used was the KUK state game. I think it was uh, 82%, uh, 82% of bubble teams based off the numbers this year should beat Kansas state in a road game. So basically how wins above bubble works in a very easy and digestible format, which I think is part of the beauty of this is that most people can figure this out with a, a brief explanation is, so Kansas plays at Kansas State, okay? If Kansas wins, it has done 0.18 games better than a bubble team because a bubble team is expected to win at 82% of the time. If KU loses, it gets negative 0.82 added to its total because it's done 82% worse than what a typical bubble team would do. The basic point of this, though, is you add up every game from every team and you have rankings that immediately compare all teams to every single other one. And you have that in real time. And so I think some of the hesitation, especially I hear out there is people saying, well, you don't want to use margin of victory. You don't want to use uh, a bunch of numbers out there to determine who should be in the bracket. And who the, the beauty of this thing is four wins above bubble. This only looks at wins and losses. This only looks at resume. And so this will compare Missouri to Kansas, to Belmont, to Loyola of Chicago. And then to me, it's a much better way of finding out who should be in the field because everybody knows in advance what their ranking is and what they need to do moving forward. So not only can you look at your, at your number and say, Hey, okay, we rank 60th and wins above bubble. We're outside right now and need to get a bunch of wins late, but you also could look at the rest of your schedule and say, Oh, this one's worth 0.5. This one's worth 0.3. If we win three, these three games in a row, it's going to put us you know, right in the middle of these things. So instead of kind of having this sort of, uh, I, I don't know, it's kind of fuzzy, you know, if you will, you're, you're not sure what you're doing to help out your tournament resume. And you're not sure how the tournament committee is going to look at these sorts of things. I think this would sort of clarify things and allow teams, especially the ones that are on the bubble to know exactly where they stand, they know exactly the wins that they need to get in. And it puts that in their control, not anybody else's. And so I think that's kind of one of the beautiful things about this thing is if it was used, not only do you save money with not having a tournament section committee, but you're allowing these bubble teams to know exactly where they stand in real time. So there's no question marks about that afterwards. So the value assigned to a particular team, I, I, I guess I, I haven't looked at it or studied enough to know what the math involved is to assign the value. But once that value is assigned, it's just a matter of adding up the percentage points to reach a total. And that is your uh, basically your power ranking at the moment. And, uh, and, and if you just go one through whatever the number of at-large teams are, what is it, 40 whatever it is. Um, well, you we, we wouldn't know that number exactly because of the conference tournament and, you know, the at-large. Well, sure. Uh, you, you wouldn't know exactly. But again, uh, that's sort of the beauty of it is if you're 40th and wins above bubble, okay, well, that's a 10 seed. 10 seeds are going to make it in. You know what I mean? If you're 52nd, then, you know, 
hey, that's kind of the 13th seed. It's going to depend on who gets the automatic burst, that sort of thing. But it also just lets you know in real time your exact standing instead of having the Lunardis and everybody else in the world trying to speculate on who it is and having a million different answers out there. It would let, especially some of these mid-major coaches, and again, some of the ones in the high conferences that aren't uh, are kind of middle of the pack in their conferences to know exactly in the moment, hey, here's where you stand. Here's what you need to do. And now it's in, the ball's in your court. You know what I mean? You need You, you need to win these next three games. And if you don't, well, sorry, that's on you. You knew you had to win those three games. And, and it's not this sort of fuzzy math thing where in the end uh, the committee makes a decision and the team kind of feels hosed, hosed about it because they didn't know uh, in the moment what they needed to do to get in. Okay, before we go on, let's just uh, identify there's a website right now that uh, uh, where you can get this ranking uh, and see where things stand in, in wins above bubble right now. Tell us how to access that. Yeah, it's uh, barttorvik.com. He's got a great site. It's kind of similar to Ken Pomeroy's, but it's uh, B-A-R-T-T-O-R-V-I-K. And then all the way on the right side, it's W-A-B. So wins above bubble. You can sort by that. And what was so fascinating to me, Blair, is they had the tournament uh, seeding show that they always do a month in advance. And I looked it up at the time. The top four seeds in order for that bracket reveal were the top four teams in order and wins above bracket. So it kind of speaks to how the committee normally does give out these seedings. Anyway, they kind of have a lean towards these resume measures. What have you done? What have you accomplished? Who is most deserving to be in these spots? So in essence, the committee is kind of quasi doing this at that level. You know, why not have it automated the rest of the way so that everybody again, knows exactly the standards and knows exactly what they need to get to. But yeah, right now, if I'm looking at, you know, Gonzaga is number one at 6.8 wins above bubble. Baylor's number two at 5.5. Obviously that number could be higher if Baylor continued to play games. Um, and, and that hasn't happened as much, obviously, because of their COVID shutdown. But Ohio State's third, Michigan's fourth, Illinois is fifth, Alabama's sixth. So again, most of that kind of seems in line with what uh, most of the perception is out there based off these teams, how they've played, how they've done against very good opponents and what their quality wins are. It's kind of all compressing that down. It's also giving teams full credit for good wins, mediocre wins, great wins. I mean, sometimes when you beat a bad team, you should get credit for that too. So it gives you credit for all the wins that you have and, and not just kind of taking segments out and saying, Hey, you get credit for this. So uh, yeah, just another way to look at this thing. But yeah, if you go to barttorvik.com and click on the right side, you could look at exactly where teams are. And it's kind of fascinating right now to, to see even more teams where Kansas, Missouri, those sorts of teams are, because you could kind of pick out exactly where their seed line would be based off of what they've accomplished so far. Well, credit for accomplishments on the court is something that the NCAA has tried to evolve over the years. You, we all remember the, the RPI uh, years of uh, the, well, the, the RPI nitty gritty. And now we're in the net, um, the, uh, the, the net system where teams get uh, credit for you know, beating good opponents and uh, especially credit for beating good opponents on the road. And the NCAA has tried to in I guess the, the, in spirit uh, has, has tried to uh, refine their process and to make it as more precise as, as they can possibly get it while being subjective at the same time, while having a committee meet. And I've, I've taken, per, taken part in some um, uh, mock bracketing uh, exercises and heck for, for, I don't know, dozen, 15 years, I was doing mock brackets pretty regularly for the star and I, listen, I can attest it's, it's next to impossible to, it's hard. to, to, to get it right. It, it is. It's, it's really hard to try to distinguish the, you know, the seventh place team in the ACC from the second place team in the Mountain West. 
um, and, and uh, with different types of schedules, you know, th that sort of thing and different records. So I, I, I kind of like the, the preciseness of, of this, this particular system. But one thing I do wonder about, Jesse, is one of the reasons the committee gets together is to discuss, um, you know, conditions like, okay, the star player was injured and missed three games and, and that team lost those three games. Well, now the injured player, obviously in that case, in the, in the Bart Torvik system, that wouldn't account for, uh, it would account only for the loss, not for, you know, your All-America player being missing for those losses. That's something I know the committee does discuss when, uh, when they get together, takes that into account. So I don't know, maybe there is, that, that's one reason why there is a committee. I, I, and I understand that, Blair. I think here's the problem with that. And I understand where people would want to sort of humanize these things to make sure that those sorts of things get accounted for. I think sometimes though, when we're trying to go out of our way to make sure that uh, the outliers are accounted for, sometimes you weave your way off the path farther from where you want to be. You know what I mean? And, you know, I remember like the Kenyon Martin here where his knee got blown out and that moved Cincinnati off of the one line, for example. But I remember thinking to myself at that time, why should Cincinnati be punished for that? They earned their one seed. Now, listen, Kenyon Martin's not playing for them, but um, didn't they earn that over the course of time? Shouldn't they be a one seed? And so even then, like getting into those philosophical arguments, I'm not sure like what the adjustment should be when a, a good player goes out for three games. I mean, so if that team goes three and oh in that stretch, I guess they get credit for the wins. But if they go oh and three, you're not going to dock them for the losses. I mean, then you would mostly want your good players to be out, I guess, because you're not going to be punished if you, if you lose those games. So again, for me, I, I guess just kind of big picture for this. I, I can see where humans would want to say, Hey, let's take these instances and make sure that there's not outliers here. Let's make sure we trail these teams fairly. But I think in general, it's, it's kind of like life sometimes, like a lot of this stuff is going to even out in the end. And the, the, the better thing to do is probably just to stick with the system and, and just believe that it's going to work and that, yeah, maybe one or two things are going to be a little bit crazy. But like I said, I'm not even sure there's a perfect solution to what we're even talking about here with the Kenyon Martin solution or, hey, your best player's out, but then you go 0-3. Oh, or what if you go 3-0? and oh? I mean, then do you get credit for those wins? or, or... So um, again, no easy, no easy answers here, but this is a kind of streamlined, basic way to say, what did your team accomplish? What did your team accomplish? And again, if the NCAA is mostly going to seed based off of that or put teams in the tournament based off of that, then this is a pretty easy way to do it. You know, an example of what I'm talking about can be applied uh, to a team that we're covering, uh, Missouri. They've played their last two games without Jeremiah Tillman. They're a big guy in the middle, and they've lost both games as favorites at home to Arkansas and then a kind of a hideous loss on uh, Tuesday night at Georgia, a game in which they were a four-point – in fact, they were favored in both games and lost both of them. I think Jeremiah Tillman would have made a difference in both games, but he wasn't there. The Tigers lost it. Now they lug a three-game losing streak into um, Saturday's game at South Carolina. So, hey, so can I get you to look at the Bart Torvik uh, <laughs> seriously and see what see what uh, uh, Missouri's uh, wins above bubble against South Carolina would be right now? And I think South Carolina is the – Let's see. Where are they on this? I have to look. They're way down, like one in the 180s, I think. So according to Bar Torvik's number, the wins above bubble for at South Carolina would be 0.38. Um, so that would be uh, what 
they will gain 0.38 if they defeat South Carolina. So a normal bubble team would beat South Carolina, win at South Carolina 62% of the time. So again, that's kind of what we're talking about in real time. This is a nice opportunity for Missouri to build on its resume, even if it's not a, you know, nobody's gonna look at the end of the season and circle and say, hey, at South Carolina, huge win for the season, but this would give some credit to Missouri. And uh, you can talk about this, Blair, since, uh, you know, you've been covering Missouri now uh, for the last week and, and watched them against Georgia, but uh, this seems like a team right now that's sort of in need of that sort of confidence builder. Like you said, especially with Tillman out, and especially with a three-game slide, this was a team that was riding high, uh, top 10 in the AP poll not too long ago, but uh, at this point could definitely use some sort of positive momentum. Hasn't won since the uh, since the top 10 ranking came out. It is The three-game losing streak has coincided with their top 10 ranking, and now they were uh, number 20 going into this week's games and already have a loss. I suspect if they win at South Carolina, they might be able to hold on to their top 25 spot if they lose they're absolutely going to get bumped out of the top 25 but in in this Bartorvik list they are 21st um so that would make them if the if the tournament was selected today and using this system they'd be a nice six seed right now which you know probably reflects you know a top 25 team but at the at the back end of the poll and you know maybe at one point you would have seen them as a three or a four seed but a three-game losing streak is, uh, you know, that's going to, especially, you know, those games haven't come against ranked opponents, although Arkansas got in the poll after beating Missouri. So um, I think it's a fairly accurate reflection of, of the perception of Missouri. Yeah, and I think this speaks exactly to the nuance of what we're talking about here, Blair, because I know, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, Blair, some Missouri fans have gotten after me a little bit on my AP poll vote. Just, wait, wait, what? Just what? a little bit. Well, little it's, well, well it's, <laughs> explain why, because that, that it is but true. This, this is exactly right. This is exactly the nuance. So when I vote my poll, I use a lot of the advanced metrics, the predictive metrics. Basically, they look at every possession and say, how have you done over the course of the season on every single possession? These tend to tell us, and as you mentioned earlier, they seem to kind of line up more with the Vegas line. So if you're going to match up this team against this team on a neutral court, who's going to win? That's how I choose to do my AP poll vote because I, I, I think if you're trying to say, hey, who are the best 25 teams? That's kind of what we're trying to do with the AP poll vote. It's kind of like a power ranking. You know what I'm saying? It is. So if you're looking at Missouri, um, and, and I, I keep telling people this um, that are upset with me that I haven't ranked Missouri, but would you rather have Jesse Newell rank you high because you are one of the quote best teams, or would you rather have a very good resume, which is going to get you a better seed in the NCAA tournament and be favorable to the NCAA selection committee? You'd rather have the latter. And that's exactly what you're talking about, Blair, because if you go and look, Missouri has a very, very good resume. You know what I mean? They beat Illinois. They beat Tennessee. They beat Kentucky. They beat Alabama. Uh, they did all those in close games. But again, that a, a stat like wins above bubble is going to love those type of teams because they're going to get full credit for that win, whether they won by one or by 20 or by 40. Now, again, the measures I look at to rank my teams or to rank the teams in my poll they're going to say, hey, look, uh, Missouri has these wins, but they're really good in close games. And the games that they've lost, they've lost in blowout fashion. So maybe they're not quite as good as their resume says. But again, if you're in Missouri and you want to make the NCAA tournament, I've seen people out there say, is Missouri on the bubble? No, Missouri's not on the bubble. They're not close to the bubble because what they've earned so far is the resume measures and the good wins they have. That's going to be impressive to a selection committee, just as it's impressive to the wins about bubble. So yes, as you mentioned, 
Missouri right now being the top six seed uh, or the number one or the, the, the top of the six line right now, that's something they've earned. That's something that they've accomplished over the course of the season. So that obviously can go up and obviously still can go down based off of the results the rest of the season. But uh, the Tigers definitely deserve what they've gotten in that regard. And, and they're not close to the bubble because of what they've accomplished when it comes to wins and losses. You know, you, you've, because of where you are and you're an AP voter, you've gotten some attention of, of particularly as it pertains to Missouri, but what's another, what's another team that is, that, that you vote for that, that on your poll or not in your poll, your top 25, that varies differently from the AP top 25? Well, there's Missouri is the case this year, but there's one been ones in the past like it. Uh, Arizona state had two consecutive years. One, uh, when they beat Kansas at home, I was the only pollster that didn't rank them. Uh, and, and that, that created just a little bit of a stir. But little bit, again, a little, little bit of uh, mail from Tempe. Uh, just, just a little bit. Uh, two weeks later, Arizona State was not ranked. Uh, and again, <laughs> sort of the, this is the thing that kind of plays out over time when, when it's given more games and more possessions. Usually it does play out over time. Marquette was kind of one of those examples a few years back uh, when they were winning a bunch of close games. This year, uh, you know, it, it kind of depends. So a couple years ago, <laughs> it's funny, a couple years ago, I was what people thought was way too high on Auburn and actually had a national reporter talk right about how I was way too high on Auburn. And it was like a week before they went on to win 14 straight and make the final four. <laughs> the next year, I was way too low on Auburn because of the same thing. They won a bunch of close games, the metrics. And, uh, you know, it's just funny how it all plays out because the same fan bases that will come at me and say, Hey, you hate my team. You hate my area. Why do you hate San Diego? Then like a year later, will come at me like, Hey, you're the best pollster ever. We love you. <laughs> that sort of thing. So, uh, it is sort of funny, but yeah, the, the bias to me, uh, and a, People use that word and throw it out all the time, but but my bias is the numbers and and trying to treat all these teams exactly the same and kind of like you spoke about before, Blair. Um, there might be outliers, there might be examples out there of this not perfectly working out, but I think if I go and try to find those, I'm probably steering too far off course, and, and usually it's going to put me in a bad spot. But uh, Missouri, of course, you know, lucky me, Missouri has been the outlier of outliers. They're the team this year that has all the close wins, all the huge twenty and fifteen point losses. The advanced, uh, you know, predictive numbers don't really like him that much and the resume numbers do. And so it, it is sort of fascinating to, to follow because if you are Conzo Martin, you absolutely want to be ranked high in the AP poll. You can send it out in mailers, you can recruit, you know, you want that for the program, step it up, all those sorts of things. Yet if you're in your coaches meetings, you should be reading Ken Palm and Bart Torvik and team rankings because you want to have the best team at the end of right. the season, you want to be able to be favored in your second round game or your 316 game, those sorts of things. So while behind the scenes, he's working to improve his team. So that it's better in the predictive rankings on the outside. He sort of has to clamor to, to be high in the AP poll because it's going to help him out in recruiting as well. And again, that's why I'm sure I get a lot of that feedback, but uh, as far as Missouri goes, is there any update on Tillman uh, Blair? How is, uh, what is the status of that? Cause obviously he is a huge part of what Missouri has done this season. Yeah, as I as we we mentioned, we're recording this on Thursday, uh, about two p.m. and no update yet. Uh, I suspect we will. Missouri has announced the day before the games that uh, if if Tillman was going to be available, I suspect we will learn that on Friday. So maybe by the time this podcast drops, we will know if Jeremiah Tillman will play at South Carolina. He's missed the last two games because of a death in the family. So totally understandable that uh, that he hasn't been with the team. So. Well, Jesse, I love your thoughtful approach to everything that you do, but uh, especially when it pertains to 
college basketball, and I absolutely love it when uh, when Missouri or Kansas or Kansas State's involved in, <laughs> in a way that brings attention that uh, maybe you don't want, but uh, I love you stick to your guns, and that's a great thing as well. So uh, thanks for the conversation, and we will catch up again next week when we talk with you and Gary Bedore about KU basketball. Sounds great, Blair. Hey, it's Blair. We have a special subscription offer for Sportsbeat KC listeners, unlimited digital access to the Kansas City Star's award-winning sports coverage. Sign up now for one year of Sports Pass for access to all the sports news, features, and columns presented on the KansasCity.com site, and it's only $30. That's a 40% savings off our regular rate. Your subscription will automatically renew after the initial term at $50 unless you tell us to cancel. Your subscription helps support the sports coverage of KansasCity.com and the Kansas City Star, and that support has never been more important. Please visit KansasCity.com slash offer to get this special offer. And as always, thanks for listening. certain age like me kind of old you recognize that clip from Laverne and Shirley a sitcom that ran in the late 70s and early 80s Penny Marshall was a co-star she played Laverne later Marshall became an accomplished director and producer and among her credits was the great baseball movie A League of Their Own starring Gina Davis and Tom Hanks who knew she had a collection of Negro Leagues baseball memorabilia Vahe Gregorian recently talked to Negro Leagues President Bob Kendrick about the connection, and please excuse the echoey sound of the conversation. They were speaking in person, from a distance, and with masks. It's a romantic story, but baseball is a romantic sport. So we fall in love with the romantic nature of these courageous athletes who overcame adversity to play the game they love, that we do sometimes lose sight that this was a thriving black business enterprise. And, and so the journal helps bring that into greater perspective with a whole lot more clarity, you know, with it. And is it, it I'll, I'll, I guess I can look at the display page, but it's like, is there, are there personal notes in there too, or it's really just a ledger? It, 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 and there are some, some notations within yeah, the ledger, yeah. but I mean, every transaction is documented in, yeah. in that book. So gate receipts, everything, you know, that took place over that time span. And what time span is it? 1920 to 1925. Foster gets sick in 25. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I know, yeah. The significance of the Buck Fowler letter, I, and I, I guess we'll be able to see some of the... the it's hard to kind of make out, but he was writing it to, he wrote, he wrote it to Charles Comiskey. Right. But the significance of Fowler is that he is that pre-Negro League kind of icon, iconic figure. You know, they always talk about, from the standpoint most recently now, Edward White, who, quite frankly, I'm not, not sure he knew he was black, but he was black, who had played in that one game in Providence. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Bud Fowler and, and uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker. 
as these early pioneers to play on what would be called a major league team prior to Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in 1947. So this turn of the 19th century kind of ball player, black ball player, who was a star ball player, is really important to bring a piece of that level. Because most of, you know, it's like anything else, recency kind of takes over in virtually everything, and it did in this story. So the 19th century or the early ever black ball players, they don't get a lot of love yeah, because yeah. the likes of Buck O'Neill and Monty Irvin and those guys talked about primarily their contemporaries, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then that's what we talk about more right. times than not. Right. And so it's the deep, deep researchers that know about the Bud Fowlers and the Fleetwood Walkers, and so this brings that element to light as well. So what is Bud seeking of Charlie Comiskey? You know, it was congratulating him on some of the success that they had had in the Northeast, and you know, and so yeah, it was an interesting letter, and it was near the end of Fowler's life. Okay, okay, so it wasn't. You're know, hoping for a chance. Yeah, I mean, no, no, because he was back, yeah, it's too late for him at that okay, point in time. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting, though. Uh huh. Look at that. Um, you, we've talked about this a little bit, but you said it with, with you know, a little more clarity. I, I'm just thinking to myself, how much has the last year made you feel more like this is social justice, civil rights? I mean, you felt like that all along. Well, I but, felt but like, it but it brought it to the forefront. Yeah. It yeah. really did. It, it really did, and it, it created, for the outside world, uh, a greater connectivity to the museum in a realm that they had not looked at the museum at prior to. You know, we've always known that we were a civil rights institution and a social justice institution. I'm not sure other people had grasped it from that standpoint. But all of a sudden, after the George Floyd murder, people did start to turn. And it gave us an opportunity now to kind of really push that agenda. And it's opened up a whole nother realm for the Negro Leagues Museum. And, and, and I think added even more value to the museum. I, I feel like I can feel that just from what you've done, but I also find myself wondering, like, for instance, the Athletes and Activism Program. Maybe, probably you would have done it at some point anyway, but I wonder if that's a direct... There's no question. Yeah. No, no, yeah. So, there's no question. You know, and, but, you know, we've always been thinking along the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this has sped up the process on, on several different levels. You know, and, and Raymond alluded to it. As a museum, you know, and then you and I have talked about this as well. As a museum, you spend so much energy trying to bring people to see what you have. And then the pandemic forced you to now think about how do I get what I have out to those who can't come see me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... You know, so it totally changed my, not totally changed my thinking, but it sped up the speedometer for sure on yeah. the time frame in which we needed to do it. We needed to accelerate this effort. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's. Um, we've talked a little bit about Penny Marshall before, but not... Not, not to the point where I know, did you have a prior relationship with her? No, did you know but about she had a relationship with Byron Motley, uh -huh, the late, okay, great Bob okay. Motley's son. Okay, okay. Uh -huh, uh, the father of Bob Motley, who is the umpire here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Yeah, yeah. So she and Byron had a long-standing relationship. As a matter of fact, Byron had written a screenplay on Ethel Manley that Penny had signed on to direct. And unfortunately, she never got to that project. I see. Okay. Uh-huh. But your, what is your sense of appreciation for her? I mean, obviously you've said oh, it, but but just the idea that she got that interested and and that that it. that that a Hollywood star of her magnitude had an interest in the Negro Leagues 
and then thought enough about the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to make sure she left her collection to us. And as I shared with Raymond, to me, it doesn't matter if there are these extraordinarily rare items in the collection or not. It's who the collection came from. Yeah. That yeah. really is significant. Yeah. It's like the Getty Lee baseballs. Yeah. You know, those baseballs yeah. are cool, but they were made even cooler because they came from Getty Lee. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's the yeah. same for me with Penny Marshall. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, I mean, it's probably hard to know this, do you know where that interest started? I mean, obviously she was interested in baseball in general. For, for quite some time. You know, but but I, I don't know where this, yeah. this deep-rooted connection to the yeah. Negro Leagues came. Yeah. Uh, and when it came. Yeah. But like I said, I know she had a, a tremendously close relationship with Byron Motley, uh, the son of legendary Negro Leagues umpire Bob Motley. Okay, I'm glad to know that at least we have some of that connection. I think you were engaged with somebody on Twitter about the idea of Topps cards. Yes, yes, yes. Is, is that a thing I should try yeah, to allude well, to we, at some we, point? We are in discussion, so I think it's going to happen here pretty soon. <laughs> That's pretty, and there's different than anything like that, right? That, that, not, there? No, not, not, you know, there have been a few other card companies that sprinkle a Negro Leagues card. Ted Williams did a card set once upon a time, but for someone to magnitude of tops to look at Negro Leagues, that's pretty significant. Yeah, that is. That'll do it for today and this week. Thanks to our Sportsbeat KC production staff of Derek Donovan, Beth Welsh, Bonnie Davis, Jeff Rosen, Chris Fickett, and Savannah Smith. Tip of the cap to Jesse Newell and Vahe Gregorian for participating in today's show. Links to their stories can be found in the show notes and on KansasCity.com. Hey, we have another deal for you. For a limited time, you can subscribe to Sports Pass for 99 cents a month. That's right, 99 pennies a month. After three months, it auto-renews at $5.99 a month unless you cancel. How do you get it? You go to kansascity.com slash sportspass2020. That's kansascity.com slash sportspass2020. You want more than just sports coverage? Check out the entire Kansas City Star product. Sports news features, commentary, and analysis, the whole thing. You get all of the stories written by my talented colleagues, plus additional news, sports, and business coverage with the E-Edition. The details for all of these deals can be found at account.kansascity.com slash subscribe. And if you're having trouble hunting down any of these offers, send me an email, bkirkoff at kcstar.com, and I'll get you to the right place. So whether it's the sports pass or the full subscription, you're getting and supporting the best sports and news coverage in Kansas City and helping us produce programs like Sports KC. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back on Monday with another episode.